Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this beautiful Monday afternoon? David, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, considering I'm in the midst of, of packing up to move. I am very excited about the move. And for the first time in my life, I'm not in any way sad about leaving. It, it, I don't have any of that... You know, when you clean out a room and it's suddenly the, the walls that were vibrant with artwork and personal touches is, you know, they're just blank. Uh, I, I'm not feeling that sense of like, oh, this was all just a, you know, a stage, you know, to, to set things up. And it's or I, maybe I am feeling that I, I'm not feeling like a deeper uh, connection to it. And uh, so that's good. Uh, there's a lot of hassles to get through, of course, but psychologically, the mood is good. Excellent. Psychologically, the mood is good over here, too, if not a little busy just having work piled on me. You said it best when we were talking off mic. It's either feast or famine in the freelance editing world. And it is currently in feast mode, so I have absolutely nothing to complain about financially. But when there's a child who is learning how to walk, really loves kicking soccer balls, and constantly wants to jump off the bed... Uh, finding places to do all of this work is quite difficult. And I found it to be the way that God or the universe plays these little jokes is so wonderful because a few years ago, I would have, you know, given my left nut for as much work as I have right now when it was trickling in and I was trying to, you know, squeeze the penny till the buffalo shits or the nickel till the buffalo shits. It would be a nickel. Um, I would have given anything to have this much work, and now I have it, and uh, don't have enough time to do it in. So it's it's really funny, though, and I'm just taking it easy and doing a lot of meditating and uh, prioritizing the boy. He comes first, so everybody else just well, has to wait. Yeah, that that's a challenge that's not going to go away, and of course, that will change shape, you know, as time goes on. I think the feast or famine rule you can count on uh, is, is being the game for you know forever, and uh, just be grateful when there is a feast, and uh, try to find two other arms and another mm-hmm. couple of brains. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I I, I think that uh, you know. <laughs> the moment he gets walking, he's going to be, you know, moving faster or, you know, there's a mobility and a, and a willfulness that will just take on a whole another dimension. So the excitement's not going to end. Oh, no, absolutely not. On that note, speaking of excitement, Chris, what would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, just a quick reminder to listeners, we have David again. Uh, he's been briefed with five words to choose two to use across this session. And I have to say that for whatever reason, uh, the words I've given him uh, to choose from this week are particularly sort of tricky. And I think they shed some light on what a tricky word actually is. I remind people again, this is one of my uh, ongoing assignments of when we're socializing, when we're sort of going out to an occasion or having an event or, or even a phone conversation, any kind of social Uh, socially defined interaction. It's interesting to give yourself the secret agent assignment of some words that you privately need to introduce into the conversation as appropriately as possible. Sharpens the mind. 
we also have uh, each time an imaginative challenge for David. And this week we're, we're holding over uh, the one from last week because it was, it was uh, complicated and in a different register. And the, the challenge was to imagine seeing for the first time one of the major innovations of the modern age. A plane, a train, a plane, an automobile. Uh, I selected those three to pitch to David because I think the telephone isn't, although it's had an enormous impact, isn't as visually arresting uh, as those three modes of transportation. So last week David chose to think of that from very personal uh, reminiscences, you know, perspective. And that was great, uh, but I asked him to, for this week, to come back with a more historical, bigger canvas approach of taking us back in time for, you know, when people generally, those, uh, those images would have been startling. Not just new, but, but perhaps genuinely startling. And the underlying point here is that you know, we talk a lot about sort of revising history and thinking we know the past, thinking we know the minds and the values of people of the past, when really we're not very in touch with what's going on right at the moment. And I think it's a very good challenge, particularly for a writer, to really have to go back in time. Uh, I, I wrote an a, a important novel to me uh, set in the 1850s in, in St. Louis. And it was important to me to really understand the problem of horse and oxen dung on the streets, mm -hmm. uh, which was a problem in cities across America, New York included. But uh, the, the differences in noise, you know, imagine no amplified noise. That doesn't mean it wasn't noisy. Uh, a whole different perspective on animals and the physicality of, of trades. You know, we say, well, it's good to know where your food comes from, you know, these days. And it's difficult to find that out. Well, there was a time when that was very obvious. And, and, and for both good and ill, you know, mm -hmm. you saw exactly what was going on. So that's the nature of David's imaginative challenge to, uh, to respond at the end of this session. But uh, per usual, we're, we're, we're jumping into our week in dissonance. We're looking at the anthropological and psychological notion of cognitive dissonance. What are the factors that are creating schismatic thinking in, in a contemporary society? And Dave and I argue it's, it's a signature trademark of, of the modern age, which is only escalating. It seems to be uh, amplifying and accelerating, becoming more intense, this personal psychological sense of dissonance. So we're looking at issues in, in the media, social media. What are the factors that are contributing to that, that are overlaying our own personal scenarios of uh, relatively new children, money issues? You know, what, what are the big media issues? And uh, I, I had a couple. Um, I'll start off with a serious one. Uh, we very recently, uh, as in the last you know, 48 hours or so, had a, a major hostage crisis in Texas. And there was an initial, uh, you know, members and, and, and people at a Jewish synagogue were held hostage uh, by uh, a lone gunman um, who is now deceased. Uh, 
And there was initially comments from, you know, the FBI, no less, that this had nothing to do with the Jewish community. And I found that, you know, just frankly astonishing. I mean, I, I've got no barrow, you know, particularly to push about uh, the Jewish community, but I, I think it was startling that a direct attack uh, and, and serious violence directed at a Jewish synagogue wouldn't have been immediately considered uh, under the uh, umbrella of a, of a hate crime and wasn't immediately considered a terrorist act because, it, as it turns out, it certainly has terrorism motivations. But I, I can't believe how a community, any community, can be targeted. I mean, if a Muslim mosque was held hostage, I think we'd have no problem saying this was an attack on the Islamic community. I think, you know, uh, if a black uh, African-American, you know, Episcopal, Methodist Episcopal Church or a Baptist church was targeted, I think we'd have no problems there. So I, I, that to me seemed a strange, you know, dissonant note uh, that I, I really can't account for. So I'll, I'll kick off with that one, David, and then I'll come back with something uh, more on the silly uh, front. Okay, excellent. Well, it was definitely terrorism motivated. The gunman wanted the immediate release of a release of Afia Siddiqui, who uh, was being imprisoned for. Uh, make sure I get this right. She was uh, she attacked American soldiers in Afghanistan. I think, if memory that's serves what me. my that's my understanding. Correctly, yes. yeah. So I mean, this is your classic '90s Con Air, The Rock movie plot, basically. Hostages are taken. <laughs> And they demand the release of a prisoner. It doesn't get more clear cut than that. That's what I thought, and I think that's a good way to put it. That you know, in the midst of, of of an enormous amount of static and confusion and genuinely complicated issues, which are hard to pull apart and to to come to terms with, it it, it strikes me as absolutely bewildering when you get a very clear cut situation and. As they say in Australia, you know, it, there's no reason to call a pig a goat. You know, right. <laughs> um, it, it just doesn't seem seem right. I, there, there was a very clear scenario there. Um, well, while since you made that point, and and I think that is the essential nature of the story, which which I didn't bring out, not fully enough anyway. Um, what would you speculate? motivated I mean that since then they've they've backtracked on that uh, pretty vigorously but what could have possibly been the motivation for that for attempting for the act itself for the hostage situation? no 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 or, no no for for the FBI and other government officials oh, to, oh, oh, to yes, distance yes, yes. Uh, or to try to uh, to to dismiss this as being in any way an attack on the Jewish community I believe that the focus of our counterterrorism experts is beginning to be turned inward. Um, one of the weak and dissonance things, this might be more of a weak and doom, to be honest, but uh, the special forces and several intelligence agencies are running a mock civil war between North Carolina and South Carolina this week. Um, oh, I was no, reading about, I didn't hear about, about the, that. Oh, yeah. no. And for the innocent bystanders, a lot of the, the AI that's being used is aggregate data that you, myself, and everybody else who is on social media have uh, given over to these intelligence agencies. They've created composites based on our user data, preferences, likes, 
to create a psychological profile of the of the bystanders that would be in this particular scenario. I think that January 6th was the kickoff for this. I think it was uh, uh, an ability to to focus on domestic terrorism and this uh, this uprising of people who in many cases are Trump affiliated but don't necessarily have to be, whether it's uh, Proud Boys or Boogaloo Boys or even some of the perhaps more radical and less corporate-sponsored factions of Antifa. Um, I believe that the that the government is uh, looking at things like the internet and seeing a, you know, a tiger that is loose out of its cage, and they're trying to stuff that back in. So this is a long way around the fence of saying that the American populace, maybe populaces in general, but I know this one, it can't walk and chew gum at the same time. There are very few mm. things that we can focus on. And mm. we we currently cannot be focusing on international terrorism, Muslim or otherwise, when we need to be able to associate that word terrorist over the next 10 years with uh, survivalists, preppers, uh, people who don't fall in line with the... Uh, with the parents yeah (laughs) parents in virginia right right (laughs) exactly that's my that's my thought process on that i um, okay i I think that's fair enough i think you're absolutely right i think that there are two things there one is is this not being able to walk and chew gum at the same time despite that many claims to the contrary uh that's certainly never i think held up to scrutiny uh across the political spectrum uh, and I think that, that the attempts to do that invariably create chaos. But certainly the, the narrative, you know, one of those key words of our time, the narrative mm. is focused on domestic <coughs> terrorism. And I do find it amazing how that spectrum has blown out from, from people I think everyone would, would, you know, consider to be out-and-out lunatics. I mean, I've had some exposure to some of the serious militia people in uh, the Michigan panhandle and the Idaho uh, panhandle. Uh, there are some real loony people there. And of course, they're, they're, they're scattered around the country. You know, they're, they're, they're everywhere. But I, I think now um, that, that term domestic terrorism, when that got applied to uh, parents objecting at school board meetings, you think, huh, maybe this has gone too far. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's how this always, it always goes a little too far. My weekend dissonance is a little bit of inside baseball um, because the alternatives are more stuff about COVID, more stuff about Joe Rogan, who continues to absolutely crush and dominate all the major news networks combined with his program. And I don't feel like rehashing those for this program. So this one is a bit smaller in scope, but some of my circles on Twitter this week were arguing uh, over whether which was better, podcasting or writing. So these are largely younger younger millennials and Zoomers who are having this discussion, and it was kicked off by a Twitter user who is herself a failed podcaster, talking about how if you want to put something down that will be, uh, you know, valued in posterity, will actually have some sort of weight to it. Um, you would want to write it down. You don't want to waste that in a podcast. And that kicked off a very interesting back and forth over the past week over people sort of doing this reductive which one is better question, which I don't find much value in. I do both. 
I, I find value in both of them. But I do think that it once again reasserts uh, that in the year 2021 and on, writing is going to have to, and writers by extension, is going to have to reach deep down inside of itself and attempt to locate its value in our current society and, and market itself as something that's worth spending your time on because the competition is in fact getting fierce if we're going by the rubrics put forward by the people having these arguments. So that's my, that's my current week in, in dissonance. Well, I think that's a, a fascinating example of, of something very specific and tactical that relates to something very, very uh, big. And I, I think that the way to, to, to phrase it is you mentioned about uh, you know, writing or, or communicating for posterity. I mean, I think one of our big underlying questions uh, on our podcast and in our investigations, which we you know, are, are quite openly uh, intending to pursue as a book, so we're, our answer is we're, we want to do both. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there's a major question, and I don't mean this to sound apocalyptic. I don't mean to talk about an asteroid hitting the Earth or, uh, you know, global warming overwhelming us or some nuclear holocaust. But I wonder what the nature of posterity really is. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of this much more from the point of view of what I've discussed before in terms of soft memory, the digitization and the institutionalizing of memory in huge data banks around the world, as opposed to hard memory, you know, people's lived experience, people's lives, people's ability to communicate as flesh and blood beings, very, you know, via various media that they're able to leverage. I, I have some serious uh, questions about the nature of posterity, and I think that they're very relevant living in Las Vegas. I mean, I think you can look at, 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 you know, there are very few major figures from the, the history of Las Vegas entertainment that have any resonance with Gen Z whatsoever. They have to be on the level of Elvis, and that's pretty much at the superficial icon level, not really deep into any kind of, of music or knowledge or, you know, it's pretty superficial facial recognition. Uh, you know, and maybe Frank Sinatra, uh, Dean Martin, the Rat Pack, you know, maybe if their parents have worked in, in the business or if they have jobs, have had jobs at the casinos, possibly. But Liberace, you know, uh, I mean, there are major figures who just disappear. It's like the buildings, the hotels that get imploded, you know, mm -hmm. and then they're gone. What what did the, the old Sahara Hotel look like? Well, I don't know. Right. What did right. the Riviera? I mean, you know, I mean, they're just gone. So when, and my, I talked about this with my mom, who's, you know, a belief, well, all these things will circle around. History is, you know, cyclical, and people will rediscover readings and the classics and the value of culture. And I said, well, what's, what are the mechanisms for that? I want to believe that too, but there have to be some mechanisms. Those things have to be taught in the university. They have to be inculcated at the family level. I mean, I think there are some real questions about that. Will the new generations fund the arts, you know, in the way that the past has. I'm not so sure. Will even our super wealthy people do that? I'm not so sure. So I think any, any proposition that is banking on the notion of posterity, my question to those people, and it's, it's a sincere question, I want to be optimistic about this too, but I would like to understand better their ideas of the mechanisms of how that posterity 
posterity endurance will actually occur. Because it can't just be, well, you can find it on the internet. Well, yeah, then what? why? You know, who's going to go looking? Why will it become rediscovered? Whereas if you say, how did, for instance, a very specific example, how did Herman Melville's reputation and his works get got rediscovered in the 1920s? Well, I can tell you exactly how that happened. You know, mm -hmm. there were some real specific mechanisms involved in that. Otherwise, uh, that never would have happened. And I mean, his, where he was buried was had been forgotten. And it's in yeah. a pretty major New York cemetery. Mm -hmm. So I, I, question, I think that one of the things that is decisively different about our time now, and I'm really, I've always been a conservative on that. I've always argued for more continuity than radical change. And I've, I've flipped around on this. Um, I question how much of the tradition and conventions and deep structure of the past we can really count on. And I, I'm not so sure that that can just be assumed. I really can't. Um, and I think that's one of the issues we're exploring in general terms. You know. No, I I really appreciate the the frankness and the honesty with which you said that because a lot of writers <laughs> seem to be indulging in what is known as cope right now. They are coping with the fact that writing is being outpaced by all these different mediums, and that. I'd have to think a lot more about this, right? I'd have to think a lot more about because it's not it's not as simple as saying like, oh well, people these days are just a bunch of numbskulls and they want to listen to podcasts with fart noises. People have always been pretty evenly distributed in in what they're what they're interested in. But I think that the podcast offers a lot of things that writing does not, namely the ability to develop complex ideas over time. Uh, the parasocial element of the podcast, which is present in some sense in books, uh, especially longer ones like with David Foster Wallace and Thomas Pynchon come to mind, where you kind of get a feel like you're hanging out with a buddy when you're reading it, but it's not as immediate as the podcast is. Um, and then there is, you know, the ease of doing it while doing something else, which is one of the impossible problems for, for writing. Sure, we have audiobooks, but that really only goes so far. Um, <clears throat> it really does require patience and, and concentration and focus. So anyhow, I'll, I'll leave that there, but uh, there's there's a lot of interesting questions with, with that particular argument. Yeah, the, I, I, well, I think it's good that that, that argument is, is really uh, being explicitly, you know, made and discussed because I think it, 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 it's certainly time and uh, I, there isn't really uh, an answer. To it. I, I think the best answer is the one that you and I are, are hoping to uh, really um, activate of, 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 of using all available media that is relevant to, to the topic. I think that's another important thing is that uh, that there is a question about relevance of, of delivery mechanism, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think there are some things that can only be delivered in terms of, of writing, um, and I think that that's fine. Uh, and hopefully people have some skills and some capabilities and opportunities across any uh, medium that suits their communications uh, 
content and goals, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an interesting... Uh, well, my follow-up is not that interesting, honestly. It's kind of a silly one. And, and nevertheless, I think what's important is... And what, what sticks in my throat, so to speak, is that uh, it, it manages to uh, replicate itself uh, day in and day out. And I think there are a few things that really break through the inertia and natural boredom uh, and short attention spans of people today. And those topics that do, I think really do deserve interest, whether or not you and I find them interesting at all or not. And this is a story that just, again, happened in the last couple of days. And I mean, God knows how many times it really happened. So there's, there's this issue. It's like, why did we hear about this instance? I bet there were an awful lot more. But a young woman went to a $50 all-you-can-eat sushi fest. You know, the great American buffet line, smorgasbord, you know, get value for money. Well, she got her value for money and ended up in the hospital with a massive stomach ache. And, you know, had to get her stomach pumped. And you think, okay. So... And this is an example of something that is an ongoing sort of issue. Yes, this specifically happened just in the last couple of days, but it's an ongoing theme of of the modern age, and certainly the American taken. I think Americans lead the world in this, where we're torn between just absolute overconsumption of a disgusting kind, you know, really, really disgusting. And you don't have to think about people starving around the world. It's not, take that moral, ethical sort of thing out of the picture. Just talk about disgusting amounts of food and just people pigging out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got a, a multi-trillion dollar diet industry. And we've just gone through New Year's. And of course, the number one New Year's resolution, you guessed it, it's all about dieting. And, of course, a lot of those resolutions will fail inevitably. And I always think that, you know, if aliens did land, this might be one of the things that they just use a couple of tentacles to scratch their very enlarged heads with and just go, what is wrong with you? What is wrong (laughs) with you? Why why do you keep doing this? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've got... The media analytics are so frighteningly stark. We've got fat shaming and so-and-so sizzles in, you know, an evening gown or someone showing off her bikini body. And I have to say that, that a great, well, the vast majority, the vast majority of body images uh, concerns have to do with women, you know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and this is odd because obviously there are a ton of obese men wandering around. And I don't know if, if it's a good thing that men aren't more concerned or do men not look at, at really, you know, great men's bodies and not feel comfortable about it. But if you had to pick, I think, the number one schism uh, in popular uh, street-level terms, I think it would be this. I think it would be the all-you-can-eat versus dieting, fat-shaming, and who's... Uh, scorching in, you know, a not there, (laughs) nothing left to the imagination bikini, you know? I saw on my mother-in-law's end table 
uh, I think it was Shape magazine or something, uh, and it had a very curvaceous woman on it, and by that I mean that I think she weighed about 270 pounds, and <laughs> I, I thought to myself, you know, hey, she's happy, whatever, um, but I, th- I, j- I can never really reconcile when, when models like this are on, on covers of fitness magazines, because it's, it's supposed to be aspirational. When I get muscle and fitness or men's health, I want to open up that magazine and see some jacked, ripped, roided out dudes. Not because I have uh, the thought in my head that I could get there at some point uh, or the interest in doing so, but I, I want the aspirational Adonis imagery to inspire me to go hit the gym and, you know, hit the weights, man. You know, you, you want something that looks good. Um, I'm not going to get jealous of a bodybuilder in a magazine that I purchased to look at bodybuilders. That's, that's insane. Well, that's what we're talking about. A kind of pathology, schismatic, dissonant thinking that has that crosses the line from just personal confusion to pathology. And I think that's exactly what happens for a lot of people. I understand exactly what you're saying. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of research about this. Macy's on 34th Street in New York. Macy's, you know, before COVID, with, with all of that, you know, just amazing, legendary uh, storefront window space, attention-getting media there. They they stocked a whole corner, so two sides, with plus-size model mannequins. Mm-hmm. And they had cameras filming responses. Well, it was shocking, or and uh, but maybe not shocking at all. It was very predictable. Nobody wanted to look, you know. Nobody went, mm-hmm. oh, that's good. That's politically correct. Uh, and they went, ooh, you know. Right. Right. It wasn't aspirational. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't. So there's a lot of confusion about this. Uh, and this actually just, uh, I, I, I'm glad you, you we, if I could just take a moment, because one of my former students who was really good, uh, she majored in psychology and she could have been a great clinician. I, that's kind of where I thought she was headed. But now she wants to work in market research. She's African-American. And she developed off her own bat and, and worked out uh, a, a, you know, a modest scale research project, which has gotten her a good gig in Los Angeles with a really major market research company. And her idea, she put together a, a compilation of clips of, of ads that feature black Americans. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, <clears throat> there it, it, it's, you know, it's, you'd say, look, that's a really appropriate choice you know it works well and in some cases i think and and this was her point that she thought oh this just doesn't look sincere this is bandwagoning this is really obsequious wokeness you know Mm -hmm. so she went out uh she had a control group of family and friends but she went out to a hundred uh african-american people that she did not know within her age and 10 years difference to get their response on a spectrum. And lo and behold, absolutely, her intuition was right. There was quite a bit of, of uh, discussion. You know, she did qualitative interviews. People that were not just accepting, oh, there's a black face, you know, good. Uh, no, they, they were very aware of corporate insincerity and just something that just didn't work, you know? 
And I think that's a very, very interesting. So the point is that people, I, I think this idea that we, that we want to see that representation in and of itself solves the issue, that put a plus size mannequin in the window, put you know, a person of color in any ad, and suddenly you've ticked the box of diversity and inclusion. No, it's not that easy and people aren't that easily fooled. I have a rant about an episode of Sesame Street that my son was watching, but I'm going to hold off because we have <laughs> meat to get to. I didn't mean to interrupt you before you could finish. Your no, point, no, that's uh, so, so. So I think uh, but, uh, I, yeah. I think I know what that I think I know where you're going. And I think we should hold that over. I think that's worth I think actually a little bit of Sesame Street uh, debriefing is probably in order. I, I haven't really picked up on that. I, I, I missed that in my own life. But I've been aware of where that is in terms of social influencing. And I, I think I'd like to hear that at some point. I really would. I think yeah, and maybe I do next have week a, we'll do an a, intuition. Well, yeah, next week we'll do a week in, in, a week in Sesame Street. And I'll, I'll give you the, the rundown. Um, okay. On this episode, we, you left us with some more tools last episode. You gave us a rundown of them because I was curious to be able to sit and ponder them a bit. But I'm anxious to hear uh, an you expound upon these these concepts that you brought up last episode. Some, right. some the okay. versus me, okay. hyperbole, euphemism, things like that. Okay. Well, the the versus me I introduced as uh, words, phrases, particularly, but they could be larger concepts, but mainly they're individual words and phrases that are okay for one you know group of people to, to use and not okay very much not okay for others so it's a very exclusionary approach which is ironic in our era of diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. and i wanted to flesh that out with a simple metaphor of uh invisible pet fences uh which i think is a beautiful idea they're now you know sonic uh control you know device but it's about control it's about sort of controlling but my point was it's not just that you can't say certain words for instance white people are really forbidden to use the n-word and i made the point that the vast majority of white people i believe don't have any inclination to want to use that word i think that that uh, comes, you know, I think there, there are some, I'm not saying there, there aren't, I'm not saying that word, the full word doesn't get used, but I think that there, it, it's by far and away an exception that proves the rule, uh, rather than the reverse. And that doesn't minimize the strangeness of, uh, the N word as kind of to me, that sounds like a, a kind of babyish, you know, sort of code. It is, um, yeah. It is. It's like not spelling. It's like C A N D Y. You know, saying mm -hmm. that to a child. I, I, I think that there, there's something really disturbing about that. That, um, that is a problem. But there, are, there are many more words and phrases in that. But my point was, it's not so much that we've made uh, certain bits of language taboo. You know. Every culture has taboos. That isn't in itself the problem. The underlying mechanism or mechanics, that's where the problem is. Because as I said last week, it's a breakdown of a world consensus agreement about the nature of communication. That it really is important what is said, not who says it. 
Now that isn't always officially, you know, that, that's, that's not always practiced. I understand that. But nevertheless, no one would want to upfront say that whoever says something, that's what's important, not what is said. You can't go the other way with that. So I think that it's important for us to look at examples of any kind of word or phrasing that is off limits. And we have an enormous problem with that now because this seems to be one of the, the, the directives. Uh, it's certainly, unfortunately, a directive of the so-called progressive movement within academia. You know, that really concerns me. It really is uh, a closing down of, of discourse, a closing down of disagreement, a closing down of not only, you know, potential conflict, but the very nature of exchange of ideas. And I, I think that, that there really is a problem with that. And we need to be very alert to whatever phrasing or words that you intuitively sense are off limits. Rather than me list out all, I, I want people to think about that in their own lives. Uh, and they, if you work on that as a giant societal principle, you may also be able to work your way down the funnel to a very personal and family level. What are off limits in terms of your family discussions? That's really, really important psychologically. None of us can get away from that. Who we live with, our, our relatives, our blood connections. There are a lot of topics that are off limits. And I would suggest that the history of, of literature at its best in the 20th century, particularly American literature, was all about breaking down those taboos and working through those issues. And some uh, practitioners would still say they're doing that, that that's one of the, the key directives of art. I, I query that. I don't believe that's true. I think there is more about in, you know, invisible fences now than there has ever been in my lifetime, ever. And well, I, yeah. I, you know. Well, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a contextual versus um, you know, flat-out restriction type situation. What I mean by that, you know, you're talking about things that you're not allowed to talk about in your in your family. If I went into my mother's house with, you know, with my stepdad there and just started dropping F-bombs, it would not be okay. I would be asked to tone it down. If even a good friend of mine started calling my wife baby or sweetheart, there's nothing wrong with the words baby or sweetheart, but coming from them, it's a little weird, right? But the, the words that you're mentioning in particular have taken on this kind of Manchurian candidate trigger phrase. Like, why don't you pass the time to, to by playing some solitaire, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Or, you know, like the there was the Red Queen in the Manchurian candidate, right? That awakened the sleeper agent. And that's where we're at now with some of these words where it's just, you know... As you said, I can't think of I can't think of any time that I would just, you know, really love to use these words, but it's it would be crazy if I was, you know, reading uh I don't know if you remember with the um his name is already escaping my mind because he's that 
Jesse Smollett, right? The Jesse Smollett uh-huh. trial. Remember, uh, the prosecutor is reading back to him his phone conversations with the Nigerian men that he hired to put a noose around his neck and throw bleach on him. And there are N-bombs in it. And uh, Smollett got indignant on the stand and said, I would, I would like that you either stop using those words or get a black person to to read them because there are black people in this room and that had that had reached the heights of absurdity at that point right that's uh, a beautiful illustration of the ridiculousness that is exact that's that's well said yes that was very that that amused me and i i wish it amazed me more because it is absolutely absurd ludicrous just nonsensical but uh that is a very good illustration of of where things have, have gotten to, you know, absolutely. Um, but a simpler, you know, a, a serious, but, but a, a very simple sort of example is that take the, the phrase, which I don't think many people of intelligence really give that much time to, uh, but in regards to the whole Me Too uh, phenomenon of believe all women, believe mm-hmm. all women, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I question, you know, I think there are a lot of good intention people. I certainly think that most intelligent people have a few provisos about that. But I do believe that there is an enormous case to be made that any resistance or qualification of that phrase would be far more acceptable and uh, effective in a group conversation if it came from a female rather than a male. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's a good example of, of the problem because it is the same argument. It's, and it's a very simple-minded argument. I mean, it really is common sense that you don't believe all anyone about anything, you know? Uh, it, it, it's no reflection on the trustworthiness of, of women or men or whoever. It, it's just simply a, a prudent... Uh, way of dealing with human nature that you you take things you know on their merits situation by situation mm-hmm. uh, but even something that basic if that was voiced in a, in a group uh, by a male I guarantee there would be some resistance in even the the most open-minded and uh, you know pragmatic thinking group you know yeah absolutely. Um, not everyone but it, it, it's a little, you know, ding. And I, I think that there's no reason for it to be a, a, some sort of uh, trigger. You know, I really don't. I think it's um, it's very strange, you know. So that. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that was the, the first for us to be continuously aware of these invisible fences and a deeper sense of taboo. And I say that particularly from an anthropology point of view, that taboos are really, really important. They're vital, social, sacred constructs. They bridge that. Their whole magic purpose is they leap between those worlds of the sacred and enduring and the secular, the fashionable aspects of the moment, the non-sacred aspects. Taboos are really important, and, and they should be really respected, and it is difficult to break them. There should be some penalties for breaking them, or some excitement, at least. And we've yeah. kind of degraded 
taboos into like, oh, you shouldn't have said that, or we're going to cancel you on Twitter. You know, it's just sort of a nasty, petty way of dealing with it. And I, I would say, let's have respect for taboos, but let's have some very, very reasonable, uh, genuine, uh, agreed upon taboos. Because that's the other thing, is that people buy into them culturally. That's what makes them powerful. And they're not just pushed down the throats by sort of some strong minority lobby groups or some media, uh, you know, vehicles of the moment. I mean, hell, CNN may not even be around in 12 months. You know, why right. are we taking them seriously? Yeah, co um, uh, comedians took a real downturn when they started thinking of themselves as truth tellers instead of line steppers. There, there was a, right. there was a, they were supposed to be people who uh, were given a ritual space on a stage in front of an audience and given license by that audience to transcend the taboos of the moment uh, with the full knowledge that it, it was all a joke, it's not serious, it's a festival. Um, and then somewhere along the line, they thought that it was their job to speak truth to power. And uh, that's, that's, not their, that's not what they're supposed to do. But that's a whole other can of worms, I suppose. Well, it's all connected, and I know I think that was a good, uh, you know, uh, expansion. I think that, that that's certainly relevant, um, absolutely. And and going back to the issues of, of simple, uh, and there's nothing simple, but the basic and 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 uh, commonplace issues of profanity. And I do have some issues to to talk about profanity, maybe at the end if there's time. I do recommend John McWhorter's. Uh, new book. He has two, but this is on in his real field of linguistics. Uh, nine Nasty Words. I think it's an important... Uh, he, he's the right person to revisit that topic, and this does cut across some of these issues, and I think he's just a wonderful writer on, on anything, on any topic that he chooses. Uh, so I, I would check that out. It's, it's come out in the last uh, 12 months, and it has gotten quite a bit of attention. Uh, the second tool uh, is, and I would introduce all of these ideas under the, there is a rhetorical stance in all of the tools that I, we, we've gone through so far. And I would counsel people to think about the history of rhetoric, which is a, a Greek invention. Uh, all rhetorical devices began in an oral tradition based on poetics. So the best rhetorical devices, the most effective ones, come out of poetry, not persuasion, not sociopolitics, not political oratory. Uh, they really start with, with, with poets. And as, you know, if we look back in time, it used to be that the rulers, leaders, chiefs, kings, you know, were poets as mm -hmm. scalds. You know, they were that, that was not a separate function. It was something that was necessary. You know, you were, you were good at that, at poetics, in the same way that maybe you were good in battle. You know, and I wish we'd go back to those days, frankly. But in any case, uh, tool number two is, is a very, very common one. And it can be a lot of fun, but it's become really, really abused in a very serious way in our time. It's hyperbole hyperbole, very conscious, intentional exaggeration for effect. And the effect is, is oftentimes not a rhetorical one of convincing people. No, no, no. The original notion of hyperbole was 
an, a, an exaggeration that was very apparent to the listener or reader. Very apparent. And it let them in on the joke. It brought them in the group. It was an, a funny exaggeration, which was not to be taken seriously, but was a kind of expression in a kind of rap sense about the creativity and passion of the speaker or writer. So it was not made, you know, not used to make a point specifically, you know. The point was, was very different. It was to establish a, a relationship between audience reader and speaker writer and to demonstrate some creative flamboyance in the latter. Mm-hmm. Now we have gotten to a point where hyperbole is almost the norm. And one of our great, great linguistic tools is just diminished in strength. I was absolutely uh, stunned to uh, read this week that the Democratic uh, contender in Florida, Nikki Fred, really openly (laughs) accused Ron DeSantis of being like Hitler. Wow. I just, that kind of stunned me. And then I thought, you know, that seems to be a comparison that has been bandied about quite a bit since, you know, 2015, 2016. So I went back to the media analytics that I have access to. And in fact, if you look at the references to Adolf Hitler in mainstream media and what they slash out as the major social media platforms, particularly Twitter, Facebook, uh, TikTok is now in their sort of, but more verbal-based ones than, than pure imagery. It is like a spike. It's an incredible spike. And, and you have to look around and say, look, are any of these comparisons in any way reasonable, fair, accurate, purpose? You know, the purpose is purely uh, just mudslinging for no reason. It's certainly no supportable reason. And I think that, that it, it's gotten to the point where, you know, the comparison to Hitler is, is so common, it, it's ludicrous. It has yeah. no substance at all. It's, there's, a, there's actually a Wikipedia page about this. It's a, a logical fallacy called Absurdio ad Hitlerum. I think I got that right. But it's, Oh, it's, that's lovely. Yeah, it's so common. The idea is that as soon as somebody brings up Hitler in an argument, they've lost because they've taken it too far because there is one singular Hitler uh, who did what Hitler did and comparisons um, hold no weight because of that. But yeah, I'm thinking when you brought up hyperbole, my first thought was the degeneration of the word literally. Um, (laughs) Good one. Which now, actually, in the dictionary, one of its definitions is, uh, it means figuratively. Yes. (laughs) Well, that's a beautiful example of our Jungian principle of of something becoming its opposite, isn't it? This is where the dissonance goes to. This is how odd things get. The looking glass world becomes the world, you Mm -hmm. know, and and everything flips over. Hi, Gus. Oh, he's Um, in so absolutely, well, I think that's exactly right. The moment you hear Hitler, uh, you, you've I, something has decayed in front of you. <laughs> yeah, that's the absolutely. way I would put it. 
Um, and related to that is, is, the, is the practice, the concept, and the, and, and the linguistic structure of euphemism. Euphemism is, has a very interesting uh, history. As, as the prefix may suggest, it, it, it meant good, it meant pleasant, it meant and, and well-spoken in the sense of polite, courteous, uh, articulate choice of words. And it, it now really means glossing over the truth. It, it, it means not, not just being uh, avoiding you know, the raw, street-level, uh, you know, hardcore way to describe something. It means going out of your way to soften and gel up and, and really uh, creating a false you know, picture of something. Mm-hmm. Euphemism uh, was from really from the start uh, had a, a great deal to do with bodily functions, mm, you know, mm-hmm, and, mm. and that distinguished, that came to distinguish class and education and context. You just mm-hmm. didn't say certain things in polite society. And there are funny variations of this. You know, Americans always talk about going to the bathroom and Australians have no problem saying going to the toilet, you mm. know, um, mm. And, and they don't mean to be, in, it, that's not necessarily breaking down euphemism. It's, it's just, a, a, they're, they say, well, why are you going to the bath? Are you really going, you know, you can are you gonna go take to the bathroom. A bath? to, yeah, yeah, are you going to wash your face or, or, or you know. Are you going to take you, a shit? Are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the next element, which is connected, of course, with bodily function, has to do with sex mm-hmm. and reproduction. And then... Uh, well down the line of, of things like eating, which is a little bit more polite and social, it's something you can do in front of people. So there are issues about uh, the nicety of, 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 of language and to what extent we try to sanitize things. Remember when garbage men became sanitary engineers? Mm. I mean, that, that was you know ridiculous. So there are a lot of like, absurd political correct changes and I encourage people to uh, Google on the official terms that my hometown of Berkeley, California has adopted and, and what they've eliminated. Because of course this relates to gender neutral phrasing. Uh, there's just a whole bunch of things that you you can't have anything to do with. Uh, we've seen this with sports teams changing their names. You know, uh, the Washington Redskins are no longer no longer the Redskins. Uh, they were just the Washington Football Team, and I think they should have just stayed that. No, no mascot, no logo. We're just gone. You know, bare bones. So there are some uh, interesting things going on with euphemism, but here's an interesting way of looking at it because. One of the big distinctions that Dave and I are interested in has to do with the unofficial and official sides of culture between private interior psychology and public society and broader, more mysterious aspects of culture with a capital C. I would suggest that euphemism is not, it it is the language of that public social space which is now dominating our, our, our times. We are not so interested in private interior psychology. There may be stuff about well-being and all that sort of stuff. And, but that's really just to sell commercial product. No one really is interested in private 
psychological, spiritual experience. Except we have to be as individuals and we have to be as communal, tribal groups. But think about how euphemisms have to do originally with things done in private mm -hmm. and how they have... I mean, euphemism is way up in usage. It's blown up because of now we're sanitizing and making politically correct so many terms that we didn't, you know, a master bedroom is now trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it goes on and on and on. And I do hate to say that there is one side of the socio-political ideological spectrum that is entirely responsible for this. And I, I don't make any apology for that. I think we know who's driving this. I think we know why. But I, I encourage people to think about euphemisms began in relationship to private activities, using a toilet, sex, you know, things that were not in the public social sphere by definition. Now, euphemisms have exploded because the public social sphere has exploded. It's everywhere. It is invading our private psychological and spiritual existences. This is where this, you know, personal dissonance comes from. And it's eclipsing and, and taking precedence and uh, ex exerting hegemony over the larger culture with a capital C, you know, and certainly yeah. any cosmological sense. You know, it's all about the public social frame. Uh, and what a deadly and boring and awful pity. Uh, I mean, it's important, but God, do we want to make that the number one priority? So think about that. How euphemisms have blown up. They have blown up. Mm -hmm. And that's weird. I think so, yeah. And I definitely have... Um... I have some comments on that. I'll save them for next time. But it reminds me a lot of stuff that I've been reading in Byung-Chul Han. So I will have a response for that to pick up on next time. We are coming up on the hour, and I have a squirmy young man in my lap. So Okay, all right. Well, we will hold over the... Okay. There, are, there are three other uh, cause versus consequence and uh, the argument from precedent... And what that does, and then just briefly, I'm asserting that that is one of the key mechanisms of cultural amnesia, which I think is, again, one of the, the real hallmarks of our time. And then I have a new tool to roll out next time of the tell. The tell. Oh. We, we may have heard that from gambling, you know, poker, conning, mm -hmm. con men. Um, mm. I, it, it's language-based, but I want us to think about language in very physical performance terms. Because a great deal of our language is face-to-face, -face, even in these COVID periods, you know, we're, we're still using our bodies and voices. We're not just words on texts, you know, on screens or on the page. So some really important things to cover next time, and we'll jump into uh, some of your thoughts on um, Sesame Street. So yeah. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hear now your response to the uh, the extended and broadened uh, historical context for the imaginative prompt. Okay, so I pictured myself as a young person in the year 1870. Uh, I pictured myself in California, Southern California, around San Diego, as the California Railroad was coming through. I okay. am a kid who has 
was born in San Diego. I've never left San Diego. And this uh, completion of the tracks uh, means that the very first train that I've ever seen is coming in. So it's being celebrated in what was called back then a golden spike ceremony, uh, where they sort of laid the last little bit of foundation on the tracks and showed off the trains and had really had kind of a World's Fair aspect to this, this whole thing. So it's 1870 in San Diego. I have an impression of the people around me, particularly of the uh, Chinese immigrants that have been working on this particular railroad. But there's also, of course, there's Mexicans, there's some French people, some Polish people, and some, you know, people who are actually born in the States and moved out west for the gold rush or to participate in the railway system. So I see uh, this train for the first time, and I've seen pictures of it before, but this is the first time that I've actually seen the smoke coming out of the chimney of the train. And while I was thinking about this, I was sort of meditating on it, on this, and I'm not sure if this is the young man or if this is just me, but I have this impression of the train actually leaping the tracks like a dragon and going off in search of blood or treasure or what have you. But the most important thing, and I, I think that this element of it is what uh, helps to place it into, into a context, right? I, it's 1870 and I'm in this town. I know the people around me. I know my family. I've seen people on the streets going to and from work. But while I'm looking at this train at the Golden Spike ceremony, I am walking along and I get to a coal car. And I see the coal car piled up with coal and I'm trying to wrap my child brain around how big this coal car is and how much coal is in this coal car. And then I look down the line of cars and I realize there are dozens and dozens and dozens of coal cars. And it's in that moment, in an otherwise small and relatively isolated world, no television, no internet, newspapers, but I can't read. It's in that moment, seeing those coal cars, that I get a sense of the scope of the world. Because all that coal has to go all over the country to power so many machines run by so many people and that's the first time even as a small child i feel cosmically small is that closer to what you were looking oh, for oh look i think that's excellent and i'm very very glad we did this i think that when we give you two shots at something it's because of the of the complexity of of the, the question the prompt the challenge and I think this is a good example because you've added something really important to that. And I want to highlight a couple of things. I think it's beautiful about the idea of it jumping the track like a dragon. I love the idea of the dragon. Of course, the iron horse or, and, or dragon were, were you know, metaphors that, that people did in fact use. And it's, it, mm -hmm. I think we can all see that and it's very, we can relate to that. Uh, but there's a beautiful, beautiful insight which we so often forget and it gets to the heart of the prompt in my point about how we really misunderstand history. That there's no reason for you to, to, to not wonder what the thing is capable of if you've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. how do you know its capabilities? You know, mm -hmm. so jumping the rails or, or taking off I mean, that's exactly what people were thinking about. And, and I've seen this myself in, 
in anthropology terms in, in remote locations where it's very, very easy to misunderstand and think what people who are not familiar with all these, you know, new technology, what will amaze them and what won't. You know, mm -hmm. very easy to get that wrong, and and you and one can be really trying to avoid condescension. You know, uh, you can really be doing the best you can, and and yet you are condescending because you've completely second guessed them or preempted their response. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful example. The third thing, which is again, and this is works beautifully structurally because you end on it, so it's good writing as well as good thinking. Good thinking is good writing and vice versa. The, looking at the coal cars and deducing in an inductive sense, an inductive sense, you know, we, we learn deduction and induction, you know, very early. Gus is already starting to get onto this, even though that's not obvious. But that inductive leap about, oh, this, or extrapolation, if you want to use that term, uh, to a larger scale, the scope of the thing, that this isn't just a, a one-off thing, this is a bigger thing. And that is a magical way to end that scenario because that I can really see that and I can see that dawning sense of realization or a sinking feeling, if you like. You know, one of those process moments where it isn't just the vision or image or situation right in front of you. It's the consequences, the consequences. So I think that was a very, very good response. And I think that's a nice pairing with your earlier version. So when we, when we give you two shots at it, uh, it's, it's worth it. And I, I appreciate you coming back with, with a really uh, a very interesting uh, situational response. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Um... Crit, today, do you have a practical tip? And perhaps a I dream. I do. Perhaps a dream. Well. I do. I have both. I have both. And this practical tip is, again, it's, it's, it's perfectly for free. Uh, it's easily said, not so easily done. And this has a little bit more of a, a personal psychological edge to it. Uh, it occurred to me... Um, I've been speaking to my psychologist friend about this, but it occurs to me that very, very often the greatest psychic needs that are placed at our footsteps that come from people, this is, this is my take on it, but I, I think you might agree with this. The greatest psychic needs come from people who can help us the least. Mm. Or, for whatever reason they choose not to, mm -hmm. okay? And that's mm -hmm. a little bit of a, a it, I, I don't think that's a dark perspective on human nature. I think it's a realistic and practical one. Uh, someone uh, once, well, someone pretty famous once said to me, if everyone who could help you did help you at one time, you would never need any help again. And I thought, I've thought about that over the years. So here's my practical tip. And this sounds a little bit self-serving, but it rounds up to something that I think is uh, communal and generous. Make an inventory of the relationships in your life. Whether, you know, work your way out in terms of ripples in a pond. 
and ask yourself about the energy exchange. Relationships are not static things. They are absolutely living relationships. People in New Guinea and Melanesia think of them in terms of vines that need to be oiled with hands. They need to be kept alive and connected, you know? Or you can think of it in terms of, of water flowing. You know, you don't want the streams dammed up. Things have got to stay moving. What are the, the, what's the basis of the energy transactions in your key relationships? It's not as if it's just about are you getting enough back for what you're giving, but that you're thinking practically and realistically about energy exchange. And think about some of the vocabulary and metaphors that work around this. I find it amazing, the expression, paying someone a compliment. Think mm, about that. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, Lakoff, Lakoff talks about that. George Lakoff talks yeah. about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very, that's something to sort of really pay attention to. So going back to this bit of advice, if everyone who could help you did, you'd never end up needing help again. The positive spin on this to end this practical tip. So we're making an inventory of, of people that we're connected with, dependent upon, interacting with the, the vital relationships in our lives. Now ask yourself, who can you help and how can you help? Mm-hmm. You know, think about that's what you can control, the positive energy flow and do it not as extending credit. You know, don't use a financial metaphor. That's that's not where you want to be. Think, first of all, of just capability. Who can you help? What can you actually do? I, I know a few people, I know a couple of, of artistic repre- representatives and people in positions of, of sort of authority, a presumed authority or apparent authority. They get a lot of attention from people because I think people think they're going to you know, get help from them. Right, you know? yes, yes, yeah. You know, and I understand why the individuals that I'm thinking of want to sort of enjoy that. It's kind of basking in some prestige, but... It's really kind of nasty. It's like political favor mongering, you know? Right, right. And so you want to get away from that. But I think we need to be honest and open with ourselves and with others about relationships being an energy exchange, seeking some balance there, and seeking to be generous in what we have to offer, which may mean there are certain relationships where we shouldn't pursue because we just don't have enough to offer, Mm -hmm. you know? That's a fair thing. I like that. So that's my tip for the week. A little bit more of a personal psychological one. We'll get back to a sort of more cognitive basis next week. But my dream, uh, it's interesting because it's a nice overlap between my immediate uh, physical situation of moving and packing boxes, which means uh, in one part is looking after a lot of masks. Mm-hmm. Masks from Africa and Papua New Guinea and masks I've made. And, uh, you know, making some decisions. Do I, I, you know, how do I really, you know, package them? Uh, do I need any special insurance with a couple? And some of them, you know, three of them are just, you can't insure them. You know, the value to me is beyond that. So in the midst of all of this, I get uh, a special delivery box. And I think, oh, geez, this is not what I need at all. I'm trying to pack up and move out, you know. Mm-hmm. And But lo and behold, it's uh, from my friend in, in Gambia, in uh, West Africa. And 
I think, oh, well, you know, okay. And I open it and it's a very, it's a very minimalist African mask. And he doesn't say he's made it. He is a, he is a professional carver and, and artist and sort of with that sacred magic sort of aspect in his uh, community. He doesn't say that he made it. The note says, be careful with this, but it may help. Huh. And I'm like, oh wow, what's going on? So I set it down and it's, compared to some of the others that I have, it's, it's really not that intriguing looking. And yet I find myself unable to not look at it. Hmm. That's for starters. It has a hypnotic quality to it. And as I look at it, it starts to change. Hmm. It starts to change subtly, but very distinctly. And I have to keep looking at it. So my interaction with it, it's, it's kind of, you know, the observer effect that way, or, or more really a quantum effect that, that I'm actually physically changing it. I'm participating in its energy field. There's a transaction. When I break away, I manage to break away to go to the toilet uh, because I just have to, uh, the process stops, but it starts again the moment I, uh, you know, look at, well, I, I get the idea of using my giant magnifying glass. My mom sent me a big magnifying glass when we were talking about um, a, a course, a no country course on, on Sherlock Holmes. So it's this, it's just this giant magnifying glass. And I look at the mask, and lo and behold, it is not a unified thing at all. My first thought, it is, is this, it's a community. There are microorganism creatures that compose the thing, and the changes are their movements and their interaction. And the more closely I look, I, I start to think, well, this is the only equivalent metaphorically is a kind of city. And then I think, no, I don't even think that's up to the level of complexity. And I get so curious, I say aloud, how should I think of this? And the mask reassembles itself and speaks as a unified thing. So all of this micro complexity I'm seeing formulates into some sort of cohesive whole and the, the mask's mouth moves and says, you should first of all not think of us as this or it. And I just step back on my heels and I hold out my open hands because I'm, I'm really just, I'm, I'm, I feel an intuitive sense of, of humility as well as a little bit of fear and complete surprise. And I say, do you have any advice on the question I should ask first? And the mask says, now we can begin. And unfortunately, I woke up then. But I, I think that's an interesting situation to be in. Uh, that I had, to, I had to change my attitude about this apparently static object. 
And I, I had to keep realizing multiple levels of dynamism. And then I had to completely redo my thinking about how to address it, the tone, the tone. And I, I'm wondering if that isn't something we all need to do, you know, all the time, you know. How are we approaching the world? Are we approaching the world with open hands and a little bit of a question, a query, about how the world should be addressed? Or are we forever asserting our identity?